Thanks for joining us for our series, Doxa Essentials, where we explore what it means to gather, go, give, and grow as we seek to more fully live out our God-given identities as family, servants, and missionaries. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. How's everybody doing? Fantastic. Uh, It's been about six weeks since I've been up here, and I thought, man, if by some twist of fate, uh, one of you has come to Doxa for the last seven weeks only, you have seen a different preacher every single week. And uh, that's kind of a unique thing. So I'm one of the regulars, uh, and uh, Jeff, who preached last week, is one of the regulars. So if you liked any of the other five, uh, sorry, uh, (laughs) you'll have to go to a different church. but it's, uh, it's good to be back here. Uh, Tim mentioned we are in our Essentials series. We're doing the four Gs, gather, go, give, grow. And I want to say something about that before we jump in today. Uh, it's easy to think about something like the four Gs uh, as doxa-specific practices. And, and I want to make the point that they are neither of those two things, actually. They are not doxa-specific, and they aren't essentially practices. And I think that's really important for us to understand as we get into especially uh, today's message of give. So one is uh, Christians believe that the Christian story is not just our story, that it is, in fact, the true story of the world. Okay? Meaning that the way in which Christians uh, understand uh, the way in which the world was put together and the way in which it works is not just our kind of uh, unique spiritual belief, but our testimony is that that is the true story of the world and how the world is supposed to work. Okay? So which the, what that means is that something like gather, go, give, grow, we don't just believe it's a doxa thing, um, and then we don't even believe it's a Christian thing. We actually believe it's a human thing. Okay, so first of all, um, it, it's not just a doxa thing. It's not doxa essentials only. Second, it's not primarily practices. We believe that actually it's fundamental to who we are. And so we would say at a level of anthropology, like who, uh, what a human is, that we were created by God, not just doxa, not just Christians, but all humans were created by God to gather in community. That we are people made for each other. Gather. That we are, by very nature, sent by God to bear witness to who God is. That all of humanity is created in the image of God, and therefore all of humanity was made to bear his image and to bear witness to who God is. That's go. So as we talk about give, give is not a practice that Christians ought to do, or even a practice that if you want to be a DOXA member, you've got to give. But literally, we believe that humans were made to be givers, that the economy that God created was that God would bless his people and that his people would be conduits of his blessing, conduits of his grace for the rest of his people. Okay, and then lastly, that we would be fundamentally people that grow, that no one should be in a, in a kind of a, a, a stasis or just a, a, a non-dynamic being, that we should all be seeking to grow and develop and get better no matter what. Like that's just essential to our humanness, that we would strive and seek to become more and more and more human, more who God has made us to be. So as we talk about the four G's and this week talk about give, I want us to be able to see it through the lens of this isn't just about doxa. It's not just something that makes us distinct. In fact, if anything, it makes us not distinct. 
We are calling ourselves to the very thing that God has called all humans to do and be. So that as we become more and more humans through the process of God changing us, that he's actually making us into the very things he created all humans to be. People who gather, people who bear witness to who he is, people who give of themselves, and people who grow. That's essential to who we are. Okay, so I, I want us to see in that framework because very easily something like giving can become a, okay, what do I got to do to pass the test, to, to, to kind of pass through that threshold to be like legit, okay? And, and I, just don't, I just don't think that's a healthy way to think about this. I don't think it's a healthy way to think about anything really, okay? With me? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Another thing I will say uh, is this, if you're new and kind of new to church, whatever, and you're, you have this like presupposition like, ah, it's just church just wants your money. They're just always asking for money. Uh, this morning, we're talking about money. So you're welcome. Uh, confirming all your suspicions uh, this morning. In fact, it's worse because I want your time and talent too. All right. So uh, not content with just your, uh, with just your treasure uh, to, because it's got to be a tea. So 2 Corinthians 8 is where we're going to be. So turn to 2 Corinthians 8, if you would. We will be in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We've got a lot of text to cover, so I will be talking quickly. 2 Corinthians 8 is where we'll start. Penny just read verses 1 through 7 more adeptly than I ever could, so I won't embarrass myself by rereading it. Um, I want to point out three things in this first section. Verses 1 through 7 are kind of a Paul's thesis. And then he's going to back it up with four ideas um, in the following two chapters. But really, in that first section, those first seven verses, is Paul's thesis. It's the principle of generosity. And he's going to say three things. First... Paul is not here making an argument for tithing. Okay, I want to be clear about that. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is not primarily about tithing. Tithing in this passage is assumed, and it's actually illustrated in verse 5. So we'll start there. He says this, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So the primary reason that Paul is writing to the Corinthians here is because the church in Jerusalem is undergoing intense persecution and is in need of financial help. And so he is writing to the Corinthians to get money to take to the church in Jerusalem to help them. Okay, so he starts by telling the story about the Macedonian church and saying that they gave themselves first to the Lord, the tithe, the offering, and then over and above that gave to Paul so that he could take money to Jerusalem to care for those in Jerusalem. Now, we'll get back to the Macedonians, but I want to start here. That the baseline in our understanding of how we, we handle our finances at Christian, as Christians is the tithe. So Paul assumes that, um, and I know that many of us don't assume that, and that it is a very real struggle. Okay? So no matter where you are on the financial spectrum, 10% is 10%. Okay, and that's, that's a big chunk for all of us, especially considering it's designed to be, and the, kind of the biblical word for this is first fruits. So it's be the best and the first of what we have, time, talent, treasure, the best and the first would go to God. 
And Paul sings the praises of the Macedonians that in spite of their uh, you know, po- extreme poverty and severe affliction, which we'll get to, um, they not only gave themselves to the Lord, but also gave themselves over and above to the church in Jerusalem. Now, for some of us, that's really, really hard. That we are on a shoestring budget and we are struggling to make it and and, and the idea of giving 10% to the Lord is, is kind of almost unfathomable. And so I don't want to minimize it by just going like, hey, Paul implies this. We're actually talking about more and gloss over the fact that it's a very real struggle for many people. And I'd say this, I, I'm not altogether a stranger to that kind of experience. I grew up, I, I wouldn't say poor, but certainly on the poor side of things. I remember distinctly one year, our Christmas tree was the cutoff top of somebody else's Christmas tree who's bad at measuring their ceiling, okay? And um, so they took theirs home, cut off, went, uh-oh, and, uh, and, and discarded it. My dad scooped that thing up, put it on a table, and said, Merry Christmas. And that was our Christmas tree that year. That happened to also be the year that our Christmas present singular, was Sesame Street pillowcases. And so we loved them. They had Grover and, and uh, all, you know, the crew that, uh, <laughs> that I know for sure. And, um, and, but I remember, like, I, I, now looking back, I remember those times ago, oh, yeah, like, we didn't have that. We didn't have, I remember our first TV, and it was this big. And, it, I, I, and you don't know it as a kid, but I, I now know, looking back and talking to my parents, um, I, I remember when I first got into ministry, we were planting a, a church in Phoenix, and I worked as a barista for the first two years full-time uh, that we were planting the church so that the church could kind of get off the ground and uh, didn't take a salary, didn't want to take a salary until they could pay me a full salary, which at that time was $30,000. And so I uh, was, you know, having, starting a family on v- relatively little money. But I just remember that my parents always gave. And it was just, I, I, I never thought of it as like, oh, I, I could not do that. And, and I'm so thankful that I, that was not ever a category for me because I definitely would have taken advantage of that category. Because there were a lot of times where things were really tight. And here's the thing, like 10% is always 10%. So as income rises, so too does what that 10% means. So even today where I, you know, God has been gracious and I am not scraping the bottom of the barrel anymore and I can buy real Christmas trees like a big boy, um, you know, it's still every month when that tithe goes out and we're able to give over and above to some missionaries and nonprofits and stuff, it's, I, I, I give online. I, I want to be real honest, and, and sometimes this gets weird. My, my uh, kind of rule of thumb with money is just talk about it a lot, and, uh, and then it stops being weird eventually uh, if you just keep talking about it. Um, but we, uh, we tithe, we always have, and, and, but we tithe, we give online. And so it just automatically kind of debits and I don't see it, but I set for myself a calendar reminder so that it tells me, hey, you're tithing today. And I have to think, I don't do this every month, but often I think about how much money that is and what I could do with it. And, and I think like, okay, the, the, the moment that it becomes most acute for me is when I think about trying to buy a house in Seattle. Yeah, everybody laughs like, yeah. Uh, 
I, I live on the west side near Green Lake, and, and I would probably never be able to buy a house in that area, in part because even if I was not competing with Amazon employees, and I was just competing with normal people with normal money, I, um, I you know, there, I, I have that 10% right off the top that, I, that just, it goes elsewhere. And every time I, you know, look at Redfin or whatever and, and think about that, I think, gosh, that extra money would really come in handy right now. And they go, okay, well, the church is going to monitor what I give, so that's done. Like, well, what about the missionaries? They seem like they're doing all right, you know? Like, and I can very easily talk myself out of that. In fact, I, there's no question, I was just talking to my wife uh, in between services, and she always gets nervous when I talk about what we do, because she doesn't want it to sound like a brag. And I, I told her, I said, but here's the thing, we could do more. Like, we could. I could drink less coffee. A bad example. I, I, that, that's not true, actually. But there are things we could cut out, and we could give more. There are more missionaries we could support. We are not being 100% selfless with our money. We're just not. So even though like we try year over year to go, okay, can we give more this year? And a lot of times the answer is yes. A lot of times the answer, sometimes the answer is no, we can't or we're not going to. Truth is we could always give more. C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity, I don't know if you're familiar with him, uh, he says, he's got this great line. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that we, they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. Now, what I love about that quote is it, it gets to the heart of the matter, absolutely, that sacrifice is sacrifice, no matter if you make 30,000 or 300,000. The call is generosity and sacrifice. And that there has to be work done on all of our parts to ask real questions of our hearts to go, okay, what is that for us? What is true sacrifice and generosity? Because for many, it is over and above 10%. If we were really honest with ourselves, we could be doing more. We could be caring for people more. We could do more. So we have to ask ourselves that question. Is, is our lifestyle consistent with those around us who make about the same amount of money? And there ought to be things in our lives as Christians that we, can't, we have to say no to because we believe in something else. That we value other things. That we care for the good of our neighbor. And we, so we give generously in ways that people around us do not. Okay, so that's number one. Second thing in this passage I want to point out is that Paul reminds us in verse 7 that giving, generosity, isn't extra, as the kids say. He says, verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul basically says, the same way that you as a Christian would pursue godliness, that you would pursue obedience, that you would pursue faith, that you would pursue purity, that you would pursue all the things, kindness, and all the things that you would say, yeah, as a Christian, I'm trying to get better in these areas, that there would be that same impulse to grow in the area of generosity and sacrifice. 
I mentioned to you that, you know, year over year, my, my wife and I will sit down and go, okay, can we do more? Can we give more? And that's not just money, but can we, you know, give away our time more? Can I use my talent in ways that don't necessarily benefit me? Can I use my talent in ways that only benefit other people and don't benefit me? Can I set aside, and it gets weird, honestly, for pastors because you get this gray area between like, okay, I'm serving these people or I'm you know, going out of my way to love my neighbor or whatever. Like, is, that my, is this my pastor time? Is this my not pastor time? So it, it gets a little gray, but the point is like, we ought to be pursuing greater and greater generosity as we pursue, the same way we would pursue greater purity, greater faith, greater faithfulness, whatever the case may be. Paul goes, this is normal. This is just a part of what it means to be a Christian. And then number three. In those first five verses, we see a a mathematical equation that just doesn't add up in the real world. He says in verse one, that we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So here's the equation. Extreme poverty that they live in plus a severe test of affliction, which is something on top of whatever this kind of baseline poverty they live in. So they're poor people who are also experiencing a severe test of affliction. Somehow they've got some joy sprinkled on top of that, and the result is generosity. Like world-famous generosity. Like now 2,000 years and, and ongoing kind of famous for their generosity. That somehow that equation works of, of, of poverty plus affliction plus joy equals generosity. This is a math problem that simply does not add up without grace. That's the only way this math problem works. It is only in the kingdom of God that this math makes sense. And he calls it out as such. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Because it doesn't make sense. It requires something supernatural in that for that math to make sense. And he goes, it's grace. God has given these people grace. It's not to say that non-Christians aren't generous or can't be generous. That's not the case. But the consistent sacrificial impulse that we see in the Macedonians is rooted in four ideas that, that only Christians can confirm and affirm. And that's what I want to talk about for the rest of our time. These four ideas that Paul outlines for us, starting in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 8. First, God's gospel. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. First, the issue of generosity, sacrifice, is a core gospel issue. 
Paul roots this very clearly in the work of Christ on the cross. For you know, verse 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So here's Paul's argument. Generosity and sacrifice are core to what it means to be a Christian because Jesus, though he was rich in heaven with all the splendor and glory of heaven, chose to become poor on the cross, naked, destitute, alone, having no power, so that we might become rich. And then there's almost like this implied dot, 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 so... You can hoard it all for yourselves and be kind of thankful? No. The, the idea is that God, Christ in heaven himself, though he was rich, became poor so that we might be rich, so that we might pour out that blessing the same way he did. That we might walk in his ways as believers of the gospel, as lovers of Christ who have said, I am now new, I am one with Christ, I'm on team Jesus. Well, that means though he was rich, he became poor so that you might be rich, so that you might lower yourself, become poor for the sake of others. That's how this thing's supposed to work. In fact, Paul takes it one step further to a degree that makes me a little uncomfortable, if I'm honest. It says in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Other translations call it a test. That's basically what Paul's saying, right? He's saying, I, I, I want you to prove. I say this not as a command, but, uh, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. That your commitment to the gospel that you profess is matched by your willing to walk out the gospel in your life. So, am I saying that good Christians will give and that generosity is a mark of gospel conviction? Yeah. Kinda. I mean, I don't know what a good Christian is exactly. How is obedience and sacrifice not a mark of gospel commitment? Am I saying that, that all people who sacrifice and are generous are good Christians? Of course not. It comes easy for some people. Am I saying that everyone who's you know, not generous is a terrible Christian? No, of course not. We all have areas of weakness that we need to grow in. Am I saying that generosity and sacrifice is the mark of what it means to be a gospel-centered Christian? No. But is it a mark? Yeah. Is it a proof? Yeah. And you're not trying to prove it to me. I, I, I'm not the arbiter of those things. It's for you. It's for you to be able to look at your heart and look at your life and go, okay, I profess this, but I live this. Is that, gosh, is my love of the gospel genuine? Is it being matched by my actions? Paul says, this is, this is what we do. Because saying I'm on team Jesus is aligning ourselves with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is saying that is meaningful and, and identity-making for me. 
The reason that I am who I am is because of what Christ did. And what is implied in that is that I will then go do what Christ did because I think that's like the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world. So Paul roots this very firmly in the gospel. This is not a secondary issue for him at all, which leads us to the second reason, verse 13. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, for some of us, that makes us uncomfortable. This line of logic makes some of us just a little uneasy. Words like fairness, or that someone's abundance should supply the need of someone without. That, that, that feels a little too something for us, a little too socialistic maybe, a little too, it just, you know, it just makes us uncomfortable. Why? Is it because we know how hard we have worked for our money? Is it because we assume that those who are struggling are doing so because of their own bad choices? Is it because we're more committed to free market principles than to the gospel? Is it because we believe that we deserve what we have? Is it because we give ourselves credit for all our success and others blame for all their failures? See, what, I, I want to push on this moment for just a second because um, there is something so core to what we believe that goes wrong so often in our world and, and seems to be going wrong with greater frequency and depth today than certainly at any other point in my lifetime. And it's, it's this idea that Christians believe that every human being, no matter where, when, or how they were born, no matter what they look like or do, was made in the image of God. That is, the, that is the level set for all of humanity. It is the very thing that is at root of this idea that Paul can say to the Corinthians that we think your abundance should supply their need because fundamentally you are the same. You have the same value, the same dignity, are worthy of the same honor. You are all image bearers of God equally and without distinction. That, that is the level set, that if we lose that, Christians, it is when we lose that, that things like racism and sexism and bigotry and all its forms can creep in and begin to create a hierarchy of value. And it is terrifying to me to see all around the world today and even in our country so blatantly, so baldly, so in ways that I have never seen before, see this bubble up oftentimes in the name of Jesus. And I'm just saying this is as anti-Christ as you can be. That the fundamental belief about each other in Christianity is that we are all made in the image of God. And so Paul can with, with great conviction say, 
if the, if the people in Jerusalem need money, then why wouldn't the people in, in Corinth care for them? Because we're all in this together. We're all the same. You don't deserve what you have more than someone else does. You don't deserve your money. You don't deserve your power. You don't deserve your influence. You don't deserve any of it more than another person. There's nothing essential to who you are that's better or worse than anyone else God has ever created. And that's at the center of this. And it is when we lose this that things go really sideways for us. Paul says, we are to be generous people because of God's gospel, yes, but be also because of God's people, and we are all God's people. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 John 3, John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John goes, it just doesn't make sense. If you claim to know the love of God, and yet you do not love your brother who is in need, it just doesn't add up, man. Just completely diametrically opposed to one another. And there are a lot of people in this world with a lot of different kinds of needs. And we have the means, all kinds of different means, that we can give to those who don't. We were blessed this week. My family and I were blessed by our missional community. We got to go on an elder retreat, which was fantastic. Uh, if you've never seen Jeff dance before, I recommend it. It's, it's uh, God-glorifying. And um, uh, we, had, uh, we had eight different handoffs with our four kids, different people in our missional community. One took the morning, one took the afternoon, one took the evening, because no one can be with my kids all day. So they hand off eight different handoffs in three and a half days, and I was so thankful for the sacrifice and generosity of my missional community with their time and their talent. A little bit of my treasure to make that happen. Super thankful for that. And that is how we can serve God's people. Number three, God's economy. Second Corinthians 9, verse 6. Paul says, the point is this, which as a preacher is so helpful, by the way. Let's just cut to the chase. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
Um, God's kingdom economy always starts with generosity. Um, and, and it always starts with God's generosity. We see this biblically through the story that creation was initiated by God. God generously made us and made a world in which we can thrive. When sin entered the world, God generously gave Adam and Eve covering, which implied continued relationship in spite of their sin. That several chapters later, God generously made covenant with Abraham, even though Abraham didn't deserve to have covenant with God. God reached out generously to have covenant with Abraham. That God generously gave his son for redemption. That God generously gave the Holy Spirit to lead and convict. That God generously will come again one day to restore all things. That God's economy always starts with God's generosity. And by economy, I mean the way in which it all is supposed to work. What is of value? What, 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 how, how does this thing move forward? And it always starts with God's proactive generosity. He says uh, at the beginning there in verse 6, his point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And you may ask yourself, uh, is this prosperity theology? And, and I would say absolutely not. And I would say too, if you don't know what prosperity theology is, good, uh, it's terrible. Okay, uh, And it essentially turns God into a vending machine that as long as I pull the right lev levers and push the right buttons, God has to give me certain things. And that's just simply not how it works. But it also is, you know, every heresy is built on a kernel of truth. And the truth is, as we see in this passage, Paul says to us, listen, if you so sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you are not generous, you will not experience generosity. But if you are generous, you will experience generosity. Now, will it always be one for one? Will it always look the same? Will it always be what you expect? Absolutely not. God's favorite thing is to surprise us, I think. So I, I, I don't know how it's all going to shake out. But there absolutely is a cause and effect thing going on here. And it follows the logic of the gospel. That if we allow the gospel to make us into the kinds of people who are generous with our money because of our deep conviction about God's generosity with us, and we act generously with those around us, it means that we will be loving God and loving our neighbor well. And, and as one of my favorite theologians, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas says, that we will be following the grain of the universe, Okay, so any of you who have worked with wood know that one of the most important parts is kind of seeing how the grain moves and works through the wood so that you can cut along it and beautify it and, and follow it and do a bunch of other things that I think wood guys do, but I don't cut wood, so I'm not totally sure, but I'm pretty sure that's a thing. So um, Hauerwas talks about the grain of the universe being the way in which God made the world to be and that as Christians, we hear the word of God and it, it is informing us as to what the grain of the universe is, even in its fallen form, even though the cause and the effect doesn't work exactly right anymore because of the fall. He's saying, listen, when we act generously, Paul's saying, when we act generously, we will receive generosity, not only from God, but from the people around us, because that's the way the world is supposed to work. That's the way that God designed the world to work. 
And this was and is always started by God, initiated by God. And this is um, something I want us to get here. There is an inherent otherness to Christianity that is foundational to our faith. An inherent otherness that, that says that God, from the very beginning, cared not only for himself, but for us. That he created a world that we could live in, that we could enjoy, that we can thrive. That God saves us, walks with us in spite of our sin, always cares for us, for the other. That God initiates that, and that is so consistent to Christian ethics. That God is asking us to be about the other. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That the two greatest commandments are about us giving away to the other, to God and to neighbor. That's, that's maybe the most foundational thing about Christian ethics is that it's other-oriented. That's how God's economy was designed to work. Lastly, number four, God's glory. He says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. And because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. And the circle is completed when we experience and acknowledge the great generosity of God in our lives. And for some of us, the reason we aren't generous is because we haven't come to a place of humility to acknowledge all of the ways in which God has blessed us. Because see, when you acknowledge that God has blessed you, you don't get to take credit for it anymore. When you thank God for some good thing in your life, you are acknowledging, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. This was God. God did this. And, and that, that takes humility to, to acknowledge that. So that's where the circle starts, that we would acknowledge that God has blessed us and that as that truth gets deeper into our hearts, that, that flows out so the blessing doesn't terminate on us, that it flows to our neighbor and our neighbor would, would experience God's blessing through us. And then when our neighbor experiences God's blessing through us, it can see or he or she can see the goodness and loveliness of God and therefore they give praise and thanks and love God because God is generous and lovely. So he goes, listen, when, when this works right, you experience the blessing, acknowledge the blessing, pass on the blessing, people are blessed because he says you're not only just satisfying or supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing into many thanksgivings. So yeah, it satisfies their needs. They see that that's coming from God and then they glorify God and come to faith or renewed faith or greater faith, greater trust in God. And so when we give, God gets glory for it. I mean, that's kind of amazing to think about that. That our generosity, even in its meagerest forms, still glorifies God. This is the way the world is supposed to work. And we can be, we should be, a picture of it for the world. 
I think it's the reason why over and over, Jesus and Paul and John make these similar statements about, listen, if, if, you, if you aren't living out the love of God to the people around you, you may not get the love of God. That's why Jesus said, like, they will know you by the way you love one another. The way we can be generous and care for one another. That they will be able to recognize, the world will be able to recognize, because there's something fundamentally different because that group of people is so other-oriented, so willing to sacrifice, so, so insanely generous. There's just something fundamentally different. That Paul would say, man, the people of God don't act like they've got anything, but that everything has been given to them, which is an inherently humble and thankful posture to take to acknowledge that God has given us everything that we have. And even when we have been good stewards of those things, we still had to have the things in the first place. Like God has given us our intelligence. God chose to whom we would be born and when we would be born and where we would be born and how tall we would be or how smart we would be or how, all of it. God chose all those things. God gave us those things as his gifts. So acknowledging humbly that all that we have is from God and that we are to be stewards of those things can be this amazing picture. The one theologian, Chris Wright, calls the, the people of God a display people. That we would be a display of the goodness of God in the world. That we would be able to display what is true about God and what is true about the world in the ways in which we love each other, care for each other, are generous with each other, and sacrifice for each other. We can be that because Christ is that for us. It is not a mistake that our, our central image, symbol of our faith is the image of greatest sacrifice and generosity the universe has ever known. May that be the center of our faith as well. Let's pray. AU, for your sacrifice. Lord, you don't ask us to repay, you just ask us to follow, to trust to live out that rhythm of generosity, to acknowledge the blessings and where they come from, to allow that to humble us, to pass along those blessings to those in our lives so that they might be humbled by your goodness and might recognize your generosity and your loveliness so that they may trust you, love you. God, I pray that the people of Doxa would not put on generosity as a, a, a yoke of religious obedience, but that we would be humbled by the cross to the degree that we desire to be generous the way our Savior was generous with us. Do that work in our hearts, Lord, today and every day. In Christ's name, amen.